Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We are a Seattle-based community that believes all people are icons of the invisible God, made in his image to reflect his glory and grace. We are continuing in our series uh, called Confronting Genesis, which is a mashup of the book of Genesis, first 12 chapters, and uh, this book that we have been recommending and talking about called Confronting Christianity by Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. So uh, highly recommend the book. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, we are overlaying that through the book of Genesis. This week is not really a mashup week. This is a, a topic not covered in the book, but it's a topic near and dear to my heart. Uh, it matters to me a ton. I have spent hours and hours and hours thinking about this and teaching and training on it. We actually have a leadership development uh, program that we do uh, that is leadership development for the workplace, vocational leadership development. Um, and so we're talking about work tonight and the, the kind of intersection of faith and work, what work means and why we do it and all those things. Um, if you went through one of our cohorts, one of our leadership development cohorts, will you raise your hand real high so everyone can see? If that is at all interesting to you, no, keep them up, you guys. <laughs> finish one sentence. Uh, if it's at all interesting to you to be involved with a vocational leadership development cohort, go ahead and uh, talk to one of those people because it's great. Uh, it's worth your time. You can talk to me as well. Okay, hands down. Uh, and, um, but it, it's, it's a good thing. And we'll start another one of those here in a bit. We are talking about work tonight. And um, the reason it is near and dear to my heart, one of the main reasons is, there is nothing in your whole life that you are going to spend more time doing in your waking hours, more time doing, more time thinking about, more energy stressing about, more time training for than your work. Most of you who are in the workplace have uh, spent years and years training and learning uh, to do what you are doing now. The majority, not all of us, are working in our you know, area of study. By any means, some of you studied something super helpful like you know, geography or something and, uh, or psychology, and now you're in sales, you know, and uh, uh, that's what we do. Um, but a lot of you are also in that process of learning and studying and choosing a vocation. And anytime we have something that is that important that we're spending this much time thinking about and doing, I think it's worth asking ourselves the question, why? Why do we work? And, and there are simple answers to that question, and those simple answers are not particularly satisfying. And there are better answers to that question. So some of those answers might be, I'm working to pay the bills, right? Simple enough. I'm working uh, to make money to do things that I want to do or to uh, buy things that I want to have. And so I, basically, I work so that I can make money, which, you know, you start to like peel back some or, or kind of plan backwards these things. You go, okay, if this is what I'm working for, what I'm working for is an early retirement or I'm working for, uh, you know, I, I really want to own a boat. And so I'm going to work, I'm going to get the kind of job that will allow me to have a boat. So like, don't be a teacher, uh, you know, because then you can't buy anything uh, or, or a pastor or anything like that. So what we, how we answer this question, what am I working for? 
defines a whole lot of things. It dictates the answers to other questions like, okay, what am I going to study? And what internships am I going to get? And what am I going to stress about? And what am I going to care about? And all of these things kind of work together towards this end, right? So there are a lot of reasons why, why we might work. If you do nothing else as a result of our time here tonight, I would encourage you to just at least take the time to answer that question for yourself. Take the 30 seconds, 60 seconds that it might require to just answer the question, why am I working? And, and see if you can't come up with an answer. So um, some of us work uh, to, to pay the bills, to have a future, to retire early, to buy a thing, to do whatever. Some of us, uh, actually, we do a job because it's our passion, right? Julie just talked about that. She had a career at Microsoft. She laid that down to pursue a calling, to pursue a vocation, which we would say is like a job with some meaning behind it. Some of us pursue jobs or are training to pursue jobs because we want to be a certain kind of person. We want to have some kind of cultural or social cachet that goes along with that. So there are certainly jobs in our world that if you said, hey, I'm a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher or whatever, it means something in our societies. Some of them, uh, you, you know, command a lot of respect. Some of them don't command respect, but they command kind of admiration. Or uh, I was talking to Alona the other day, and she said, I miss being able to tell people that I'm a teacher. I was a high school teacher because people kind of, they go, oh, good for you. <laughs> Thanks for taking one for the team, you know? Like, there was some sympathy that went along with that, and I get that, right? So, so there's all kinds of reasons, and, and what, I, what I want you to hear tonight is that the Bible has answers to that question as well, that Christianity, Christian theology, has actually thought a long time and, and thought pretty hard about vocation and, has, and it had, kind of has a lot to say about it. I know I grew up in church, and, and I heard about faith and work basically in two categories. One, that we ought to work ethically that we ought to tell the truth and work hard and don't cut corners and don't steal staplers and, you know, all, all those kinds of things, like do ethics at work. And then second, that your work was a platform for evangelism, right? And so uh, if uh, not only do you not steal the stapler, but if someone walks by your desk and asks to borrow your stapler, you hand it to them as unto the Lord. And then, and then they, like, get saved and stuff, Right? So those are my main two categories of like ethical work and evangelistic work. And it wasn't until I got a little older and started thinking and reading and studying this stuff that I realized actually the scriptures have a lot to say about our work. And it, it transcends that the Bible talks about our work in categories like social justice, like doing just purely excellent work that glorifies God that we can create beauty with our work, that we can influence culture with our work. And yes, of course, ethics and evangelism are certainly part of that discussion, but they're not the totality of it, okay? So I wanna look at work through the lens of the gospel, the kind of four-part movement of the gospel of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. I wanna do that first. And then at the very end, I wanna look at some really practical things, because here's my goal for tonight, that tomorrow morning as you go to work or as you go to class or as you wake up and do your work at home, that you would have some categories to be able to think well about what you're doing because I think it can provide some meaning and some depth that maybe you haven't experienced before. 
Okay, so let's begin with creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. One of the most important things that Christians believe about work is that work is a part of our creation. It's not a part of the fall. Okay? And we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. If you're new to Christianity, new to the story, we're going to talk about the fall in a couple weeks now, but uh, from now. But in, in Christian theology, the fall is kind of the, the uh, introduction of rebellion, the introduction of evil, the introduction of sin into the world. And most of us, our experience of work um, kind of makes more sense in the category of fall than it does creation. Right? And so work feels like toil, it feels like drudgery, it feels boring, it feels like something I have to do. And for Christians, this is just not how it was created to be. That from the very beginning, we were made to work. We were made to cultivate God's world, which is why when, when those, in those kind of fleeting moments, and I hope everybody has had one of these moments, when work is really good, the team is working really well together, and everyone's jiving, and everyone's smiling, and the project comes together, and it might even be done on time, um, and all of these kind of rare things come together at once, it's on time, it's under budget, the boss is happy, the boss's boss is happy, and it gets shipped, and everybody looks at each other like, no way that just happened. That feeling of satisfaction is because in that moment you have imaged God and you have, you, you, you have manifest the very purpose for which you were created. Notice that the, this, this command of God to work is the first command that God gives humanity in the Bible. This is the first thing. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Amen. I've done it five times had children. <laughs> Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. Okay? So this is literally the first command of God to humanity is to have dominion over the rest of God's creation. Now, this question, this word dominion is a really important one. It's not one we use very often. So I want to kind of clarify what God's command is to us. This word dominion has a bunch of different ideas packed into it, right? The, the best synonym that I can think of, and this is not Bible scholar Justin, this is just the best I can come up with, is that God has given us a responsibility for the rest of his creation. And that includes a part of care 
for creation. It includes cultivation of creation. And in, in its original context, and it's, it's hard for us to understand it now, and I'll talk about why, but in its original context, this idea was, uh, was the, an act of subduing what is often a, a kind of wild and chaotic world around us. Now, for the original hearers, original readers of Genesis, the world was a far kind of more mysterious and scary place as they were a pre-scientific culture. And, and much of their life was just trying to make sense of a chaotic natural world. Now, we are, are pretty distant from that now, as most of us live in cities where we've paved over most of the chaos of the natural world. But I think we can see this, uh, this, this idea of chaos anytime we work with people who are wild and chaotic and in need of restricting, right? And subduing at times, sometimes physically with my children. And, and not yet co-workers, but we'll, we'll, you know, the day may come. This idea, track with me, this idea that God has given us dominion, that God has given people dominion over the rest of the world includes cultivation, protection, and care. Right? Now, we've talked about this before. In fact, we, we talked about uh, faith and work just a few months ago when we were going through 1 Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So if there's a, a, a part of this idea that I don't touch on, go check out the podcast. Uh, it was 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, and we'll hit on a little bit tonight. But here's the idea, that God gave the world to humans and said, here is this, this kind of raw, untouched world, make something of it. And that that command to Adam and Eve in the, in the garden here is the same command that we have today. God essentially gave them all these raw materials and said, put them together and make stuff. And so there was this raw clay and this water, and they found out if they put it all together, mixed it up, and let it dry, it hardened. And they got a brick. They took thing one and thing two and made a brick out of it, thing three. And then they realize, wow, if we stack these bricks on top of each other, we can make walls or we can make homes or we can protect ourselves from the natural world. We can do all of these things simply by taking thing one and thing two and making them into thing three. And then taking thing three and putting a bunch of thing threes together or thing three with thing four and putting that together and making thing five. And now by the time we exist now, it's digital thing one. It's, it's one and zero makes more ones and zeros, and, and I don't understand any of it, but, but at the end of the day, I have a phone, and I'm thankful for it, right? So this act of cultivation is the original act that we were given. Andy Crouch, who's one of my favorite writers, wrote a book called Culture Making, and he describes it this way. He says, what was missing, I've come to believe, were the two postures that are most characteristically biblical, the two postures that have been least explored by Christians in the last century, they are found at the very beginning of the human story, according to Genesis. Like our first parents, we are to be creators and cultivators. Or to put it more poetically, we are artists and gardeners. After the contemplation, the artist and the gardener both adopt a posture of purposeful work. They bring their creativity and effort to their calling. They are acting in the image of one who spoke a world into being and stooped down to form creatures from the dust. They are creaturely creators, 
tending and shaping the world that original creator made. This is our, this is our first calling to make something of the world that reflects what we talked about last week, the image of God in us as we, as image bearers, reflect the God who made us. This is our first calling. Now, it doesn't always work out this way. And, and, and there are always struggles, there's always toil, there's always uh, uh, conflict that happens in our work. And one of the things I love the most about the Bible and I love the most about Christianity is that it is not a pie-in-the-sky description of what could be or what ought to be. It's not purely moral, it's, not pure, it's, it's, it's real life. And so when we, in, in real life, come up against those kinds of obstacles in the form of a person, right? Like we all have maybe a person in mind that is an obstacle uh, to our work, right? And, and, and I don't know who your person is. We'll call them Jim or Susan or something like that. I don't know who they are, but you all have them in your mind. And we have ways of thinking about them, we have ways of kind of processing those challenges in our workplace, but the Bible gives us a really clear paradigm for it. So to do that, let's look at Genesis chapter 3. We're skipping ahead a little bit in Genesis, but I think it'll be helpful. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 17. To, to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The Christian story goes like this. God created everything with a purpose. God created everything with meaning. God created it all to work together purposefully. But humans did once and have every day since rebelled against God's vision in his creation. And the effects of that rebellion have touched literally every part of God's created world. Sin undermines everything, and maybe most especially the things that are nearest and most critical to the image-bearing nature of God's creation of humans. So it follows that if rebellion and the effects of rebellion have touched everything, that it might in fact be attacking the thing most core to who we are, the first commandment we experience from God, the thing we spend the most of our waking hours doing, our work. Now, this creates a, a really important shift in us, though, because there is a tendency in us to see people who are, uh, let's say, getting in the way of our progress purely as obstacles needing to be either worked around, uh, gone over their head to a boss, uh, crushed completely, which might be our preference, or the thing we fantasize about at least, 
or, or, or some kind of way to deal with this difficult problem in our lives. And one of the things that can happen in this process is that this person who is a challenge ceases to become a person with a challenge and they get kind of dehumanized as simply a challenge. They are just an obstacle. They are the problem. They are the wrench in the works. They are the weak link. All of those metaphors can have a dehumanizing effect. And so we as Christians have to do the hard work of good theology to say, no, they're not a problem. They're not a weak link. They're not an obstacle. They're not whatever to say, no, they are image bearers of God, affected by sin, and in deep need of grace, like me. That's what they are. No matter how frustrating they are, they never cease to be image bearers of God, touched by sin, and in deep need of grace, just like me, and just like you. And, and that may sound like a subtle difference because at the end of the day, that doesn't change the fact that they are still indeed the weak link and the problem and the obstacle and all of these things. That doesn't change their behavior, but it certainly changes the way we think about them. And might, if we do it well enough, if we think hard enough, it might actually change the way in which we interact with them. Because the problem has changed. They're no longer a thing we need to work around or a problem we need to solve, but they are a person in need of grace. Okay? So this slight little perspective shift can actually have major effects on the way in which we work and the way in which we see our world. Another example of this is um, kind of our, our whole approach to work uh, uh, in the big picture. Often, I see people dealing with work in one of two major categories. Either one, work is a necessary evil or a means to an end. What I actually want is this thing out there or this experience or this kind of identity and so I'm going to do my job in order to get that, which means that my work becomes kind of a tool or a functional. I'm, I'm basically using my work and therefore using my company and therefore using the people around me in order to get me this thing that I actually want. Or work becomes actually more closely tied to who I am and it becomes more of an identity thing. So rather than a necessary evil, it is my whole world. It is, it is what I am and who I am. I, I, I played baseball uh, all of my life, played in college. And when I stopped playing baseball, I had, you know, I was too young for like a real identity crisis, but I had like a little mini identity crisis. And I remember the job I transitioned into, I, I was being interviewed about something, and, and they said, well, what's it like going from being a player to now, I was, I was the public address announcer and, and did all the radio stuff for the sports at my college. It was a really big deal. Um, and, um, 
And I remember I said, yeah, it's weird. I, for my whole life, I've been Justin the baseball player, and now I'm Justin the broadcaster. And they wrote that down, like, oh, that's such a good line. And I, I read that recently because I, of course, kept the newspaper, and, um, and I was reading through it, and I thought, what a stupid thing to say. What a stupid 22-year-old thing to say because all, everything about that is wrong. <laughs> I was never Justin the baseball player. To the degree that I took that on as my identity is the the degree to which I misunderstood the gift that God had given me in being able to play baseball. That I took that thing and made it me. I made it what I am and who I am. And I see often people who, and and, and this isn't this is a good thing taken to a, a, an unhealthy degree. But people who have a passion, who have a desire, who have gotten into their line of work because it was their thing, then gradually take it on as if it is not just the thing that they do or the way in which they serve society, but it is who they are to the degree that if you took it away from them, they might have a real identity crisis and not know who they are or what to do without it. So the Bible gives us a third way to think about it, that our work doesn't have to just be a necessary evil, a thing that we use to get what we really want, nor does it have to be the thing we wrap our whole lives around and our whole identity around to the degree that we can't really separate ourselves from it, that there is actually a third way to think about it, and it's this, that work was meant to be redemptive. Andy Crouch, again, from Culture Making, says the entire story of God's people, beginning with Abraham and Sarah and now extending to all nations through the reconciling power of the cross, is a vast world historical rescue mission to restore the capacity for true image bearing. Our distinctive calling as Christians is not just to till and keep the world as image bearers, but to actively seek out the places where that image has been lost. To place ourselves at particular risk on behalf of the victims of idolatry and injustice. So in every workplace, Christians should be those who speak up most quickly, sacrifice their own privileges most readily, for those whose image bearing has been compromised by that organization's patterns of neglect. In every society, Christians should be the most active in using their talents on behalf of those the society considers marginal or unworthy. In every place where the gospel isn't shown, Christians should be finding ways to proclaim Jesus as the world's true Lord in the image of of the invisible God. See, um, I, I said just a minute ago that the Bible is not just pie in the sky and this is what the ideal world is supposed to be and just go and do that. Um, that it also kind of acknowledges sin and rebellion and, and the, the toil and the strife and all of the pain and it, and it defines it for us. But it also doesn't just leave us there. That the, the story of the gospel is ultimately redemptive. 
right? That it says this is how God made things to be, but this is reality. But we don't stop there. We don't kind of devolve into this kind of nihilism of like, well, we can't do anything about it, so nothing matters. But that the story of the gospel is ultimately redemptive and hopeful. And so not only does the Bible give us a vision for work that reflects that creative and cultivating work that we were made for, but it acknowledges the pain and the brokenness and the oppression and all that's going on in our world and gives us a redemptive mission. So we all have the capacity to then look at the work that we do or the work that we're preparing to do and ask ourselves, am I going to work in the way everyone around me works? Am I going to work as if, well, this is just the way things are and this is how people do it and so I'm just going to do what everybody else does? Or could we work the way things ought to be? Could we identify people and patterns and systems and things in our workplace or in the industry that we're stepping into and say, gosh, this is a really destructive pattern. I can see how the people with power are using that power not to lift up those without, but to actually oppress those without and maintain the power that they have. Or I can see how in my industry, people tend to cut corners and sell things cheaply that don't actually help the people but break too easily and and force people to keep buying new things Um, or or am I working in a system or an industry that is using products that are not good for the, the people that are using them but actually are capturing them in cycles of addiction so they need ever more of it? I, I don't know if that's true for you, but I think it's a question we ought to ask ourselves. That what, what we might ask ourselves, what, what is this kind of work supposed to look like? What are the real problems in this work? What ways are, are the people in it not imaging God? How does this industry not image God's kingdom vision? What are ways that I can encourage just in my tiny little world with whatever sphere of influence I have that I can work both ethically, that I can work in ways that honor the people around me, that I can work in ways that would encourage my company and, in fact, maybe my industry towards more God-honoring principles. Now, that, that doesn't mean that the w- way we do that is by making, you know, slapping Bible verses on the underside of our French fries like an In-N-Out or something like that, but that, there, that our industry can and maybe just our company or maybe just our group or maybe just you can work in ways that reflect the Imago Dei in you and in those around you. That our posture ought to be basically redemptive. That we would have a willful, choose each day a willful return to garden principles, to Genesis 1 principles, to the way in which God made this thing to be. And then we might have hope that what we do today might transcend today into eternity. This is what we talked about a couple weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, he says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. And then he 
turns to the Corinthians. It says, with the work that you do, let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, capital D day, judgment day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, that was a lot. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, so go listen to the podcast. It was brilliant. Um, It's a joke, because I did it. It was pretty good. Here's the principle. The principle... And this is, when I learned this for myself was one of the most transformative things I've ever learned in theology. And I I say that, that's a big statement. That God gave us work to do. That that work was to create and cultivate. To take thing one and thing two and make it into thing three. That that was God's intention from day one. Real work, real making, real cultivating. That's what he made us to do. That sin and rebellion has messed it all up. It's made it much more difficult. It, it has created a world in which we make things what's thing one and thing two are not worth putting together. And they actually kind of work against the common good. And there's all kinds of negative effects of sin in our world. That we have the, have the ability to work redemptively, to work as if Genesis 3 never happened, and we still are working in line with what God made in Genesis 1 and 2, that we can work actively to undo what Genesis 3 has done to our world, but that there's also a fourth vision, that if we do the thing that we were created to do, and we do it in a way that honors Christ, and we do work redemptively, that according to Scripture, that there is in us the capacity to make things and to cultivate things that will last into eternity. I know. I cried too. Think about that for a second. Think about that for a second. That no matter what you do today, you'll wake up in the morning, you'll go to work, whether that's at a building or in your home or whatever, and you have the potential to work on something that will last into eternity, that will still exist a million years from now. Or you have the opportunity to work on something that will not. That will exist today and be gone tomorrow. And and that's okay for a little bit, every once in a while. But man, we have been given a vision as Christians 
We've been given a story that says this is what you were made for, to make significant things that actually contribute to the common good. And if you do that, and you do it in a way that honors God and loves your neighbor, that this is a thing that in the day of judgment when all of life turns over and it all passes through this kind of refining fire that the Bible envisions metaphorically for us, that God might look at the work of our hands, a book that we wrote, a painting we painted, code we came up with, a device we worked on, whatever the thing is, and say, yeah, that goes. That passes. I want that with me in eternity. Man, what an honor. What an incredible honor to work on a thing. I mean, we walk around the downtown and we see these old buildings. I remember I was in England a couple years ago and I, you know, I was living in San Francisco at the time, which felt like a really old city. I went to England and we, I stood in a building that dated to 1 AD. And I thought, well, that's, that's pretty old, I guess. And I just thought, man, what amazing craftsmanship to think that the guys and people, gals, that made that building made something that lasted 2,000 years to, to create a thing that would have that kind of staying power, that could create, it was a shelter, that could create shelter for other humans for 2,000 years. And now we create things that we, we design them to be replaced in three to five years. It's a different purpose, it's a different thing. But man, what pride would you feel to know I built a structure that housed people, that protected people for 2,000 years? And how much more pride could you feel? The good kind of pride. That you invested your life in something worthwhile that lasted for eternity. That was so honoring to God and so loving to neighbor that it could last for eternity. That's, that's on offer for us. What I want you to do tomorrow is wake up in the morning, get ready for work, sit down at your desk or your workplace or whatever it may be, and I want you to ask yourself, why am I doing this? And, and I want to give you some ideas now. So if you're taking notes, write these things down. If you're not taking notes, just memorize them. There's, there's five categories, and I'm sure there's more, but but definitely five categories of ways in which your work can have an impact, can have uh, to bring value to the world around you. One, people. You ask yourself, how will I treat my coworkers and my customers? What redemptive effect can I have on people today? Two, products. Do I contribute to making high-quality, useful products that serve the common good? Number three, industry. Over the long term, what impact can I have on the justice or the kingdomness of my chosen industry? Four, kingdom of God. Is what I'm working on and how I am working going to live on into eternity? And I don't know how you know that. I can't tell you which projects will and which projects won't. But I think it's worthwhile to ask that question. Lastly, you. 
How is God using the ups and downs, the challenges and opportunities of your work to form you as a Christian? How is God using the victories and the defeats, the teamwork and the obstacles, the failures and the successes, the ways in which he has gifted you to serve the people around you and the the limits that he has put on you? Because none of you all are all-powerful and omniscient. Each of you have weaknesses. Each of you have limits. You can't do everything. How is God pushing you to those limits so that you might learn dependence on him? I think God is working through all five of those categories that our work can contribute to people's good, to the good of our products, to our industry, to the kingdom of God, and ultimately to ourselves. And here's, here's the key piece. Your work can have meaning. Your work does have meaning because of the work of Christ. I mean, it's, it's kind of remarkable when you take a step back that God's chosen plan of redemption was for God himself to become a normal human, to walk among us and deal with the everyday indignities of life, to learn a trade. There's no doubt Jesus learned carpentry from his father, to probably work that trade as a young man, and then to set about on his vocation. This calling that he had, these three years of pastoral, evangelistic, wonder-working, prophetic ministry, and then the work of the cross, and most importantly, the resurrection, that would then confer meaning on our work. Because without the cross and the resurrection, we're just living out our days, toiling away for no good reason. The cross and the resurrection gives us hope for the future. It tells us that the work we do here has inherent meaning to it and can point forward to the future that God has for us. That that is the critical piece of this. Remembering that at every turn, that it is God's creative vision for our world, that it is God working redemptively because of our sin, that it is God who has a future for us. And then he gives us an opportunity to come alongside, to cultivate and co-create and have meaningful things to do, do work in the midst of God's redemptive mission, that we get to participate in that. And it's not just evangelism, but it is. And it's not just social justice, but it is. It's not just working ethically, but it is. It's all of that, all of it to to bring about, by God's power, his, his holistic redemptive vision for his world. Man, that's good news. That's good news worth waking up for on Monday morning. Amen? Question one. Uh, is committing to a corporate job just as important as those who commit to community outreach? Seems like one has significantly more eternal impact than another. Um, this is a great question and one that uh, I think a lot of people struggle with, this idea of uh, secular work and what we might call sacred work that isn't you know, things like community outreach or ministry or things like this in a Christian sense. 
more, have more eternal value than working at Microsoft or Amazon or something like that? And the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. That the work of the people is massively important no matter what you do. Uh, I have a job where I have the benefit of everybody thinking what I do is really meaningful. And I just so happen to think all of what you do is super meaningful. Because, and I don't know what you all do, but I do know, I hope you do something, first of all. Uh, I, I know that you are, you're, some of you are doctors and nurses, and you are, and you are tending the physical well-being of other image bearers. You are rolling back the effects of sin on their bodies. We are not meant to be sick. We are not meant to be injured. And your work contributes to the restoration of human bodies. That's massively important. Some of you teach. You are educating a generation of people who will one day lead our country, lead our world, and that is massively important because I think everyone in this room who has ever had a teacher knows that what is far, less Im what, what is far more important than the content you are delivering is the relationship that you give those people, the love that you portray to them. That's what we remember. If anyone ever asks who's your favorite teacher, you're never going to say the teacher that taught you the most things. It may also be a teacher that taught you the most things, but it's almost always the person who invested in you as a person, okay? Those of you who are in business, you are making products that make the world function more equitably. You are bringing prosperity to people groups around the world that couldn't otherwise have prosperity. You have the, no, are, are there jobs that you could get into that do not contribute to the common good? Yes, lots of them. I won't name them because I want you to come back. <laughs> and, and, and that's for you to figure out. That's, that's part of the work that you have. Some of you are real estate developers and you are making homes for people. That's massively valuable. Every human being needs a place to live that is safe and warm and comfortable. Some of you, uh, we contribute to this vision of society uh, that God had in creation in a million ways. Here's what I know. My job won't exist in eternity. I'm going to have to go back to school. There will be no need for me in heaven. I'm starting to prepare my resume now. Most of what you all do, you will have the potential to do for eternity. Because we'll still build, we'll still develop, and we'll still, okay, nurses and doctors, you'll be in line with me, but you know, <laughs> whatever. But if we properly understand God's vision for heaven and for eternity, it's more of this with the sin removed from it. So, yeah, it's massively important, this corporate job. Second, and I'm going to tie a couple questions together here because um, we're running out of time. Um, how can stay-at-home parents deal with the dichotomy of having the responsibility of raising God-fearers and also knowing that ultimately it is God who changes hearts, including those of your children, a.k.a. working towards something that only God has ultimate control of? <laughs> 
here's, here's, the, here's the wrong thinking in that. That you're the only ones working for something that only God has control over. That's literally everything we're doing. I stand up here every week and do my little song and dance hoping that the Holy Spirit will do something in you that I in no way have the capacity to do. Each and every one of you who goes to work, and let's just say you work on a thing that actually contributes to the good of society, there is, you have no control over whether or not that thing gets used properly and actually contributes in, in a positive way to a particular person's life and well-being. You have no control over that. All you have control over is what you do. Those of you who work in the medical field, you can do the right thing, you can give them the right prescription, you can care for them in all the right ways, and they can still not get healthy. We, if you think you have control over anything, <laughs> you're missing the point. God has given us a role to play. God has given us a job to do. All the while, he surrounds us with his presence, silently governing everything around us. And, and thank God that it's not ultimately up to us whether our kids become Christians, whether any of you all change as a result of my sermons, whether your products have any actual positive effect on society, whether the teaching or the doctoring or the nursing that you do has actual positive outcomes. Thank God that it's up to God who loves the people we're serving far more than we ever could, who is far more powerful to save and heal than we will ever be, who is far more intelligent and knowledgeable and caring and all of the things that we can never be, he is most fully. So thankfully, he is also the one in charge. Amen? So we do what God has gifted us and called us to do, and we entrust the future to him. That's our work. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. For more information, go to iconchurch.org.